join me in prayer. <coughs> Lord, as we just sung, um, speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. That is a, another way of saying the message that's at the heart of the book of Acts. Filling the earth with the glory of the last Adam's rule and reign to the ends of the earth. Father, I pray that you would work in us to that end this morning, that you would speak through your word and that you would help my mouth to be clear and the things I say to be helpful in stirring up our affection for Jesus and for the return of our King. Lord, we look to you now for help as we go to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning um, we get the joy of starting a new sermon series together. For those of you who are visiting, it's actually kind of cool because it's a great standalone sermon. Uh, so you're not like jumping in mid-series or anything. You get an overview of the book of Acts in the New Testament. Acts is a long book, as those who have read it may know. It's 28 chapters, but it, at least to me, doesn't really feel like that because it's super fast-paced, action-packed, and it's all about what the risen Lord Jesus is up to as he is reigning from his heavenly throne. So, before we as a church start working our way through the book of Acts, I wanted to lay out the structure of Acts, the main idea of Acts, a little bit about the book, and some basic information. Acts was written by a man named Luke. Luke was a well-educated man. He was a doctor. At the, of, the, of the times, and he was a traveling companion with the Apostle Paul. Luke also wrote an earlier gospel account about the life of Jesus before he wrote the book of Acts. Anybody guess what Luke's earlier work was called? Luke, right? The Gospel According to Luke. Luke Acts is actually a two-volume work. Have any of you ever read, like, a, a book one, book two volume, maybe like the Lord of the Rings is a three volume work. Um, this is a two volume work. They're very closely connected. Part one is about, in Luke's gospel, it's about what Jesus began to do and teach on earth. And part two, Acts, is about what Jesus continues to do after his resurrection and ascension in heaven. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, you could turn there if you'd like, the Gospel of Luke, we read this. Luke is writing, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. This guy is a scholar. Carefully investigating everything about Jesus from the beginning. Interviewing all the eyewitnesses. Mary, I want your take. Right? James, John, I want your take. Peter, I want to sit at your feet. What do you think happened? I want to know it all. 
He says, with this in mind, since I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. I want you to have certainty. I want you to know that I have spent a great portion of my life, Theophilus, researching all of the facts about Jesus. So the, the Gospel of Luke is carefully investigated by Luke and written down for a man named Theophilus so that he would know the certainty of the things that he'd been taught about Jesus. Now, the second volume, part two, is the book of Acts. And it was written to Theophilus as well. Listen to what Luke writes. Acts 1, 1 to 2. In my former book, Theophilus, oh, what was the former book? Luke. I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. So you see how this is a part one, part two story of Jesus? And both are written to a man named Theophilus. Written to Theophilus, recorded for us and for the church. The name Theophilus means friend of Theo, of God. Right? Theophilus was most likely a lover of God, and he was most likely a Jewish inquirer into the way of Jesus, possibly even a priest. If he was a priest, it helps us understand why Luke started his gospel quite differently from Matthew. Luke starts his gospel with the story of a priestly family from Aaron's line, the family of Zechariah. And Luke's gospel ends with Jesus doing a very priestly thing, raising his hands, blessing his disciples, and ascending through the heavens. As the author of Hebrews writes, who I am pretty convinced is Luke, since therefore we have a great high priest who ascends through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us draw near the throne of grace with confidence. Right? So Jesus, the high priest, ascends and Luke focuses a lot on priest-type stuff. Interestingly enough, when we read the writings of a Jewish historian, writing around after the time of Jesus, a man named Josephus, we read that there actually was a man named Theophilus who had been a high priest in Israel from A.D. 37 to A.D. 41. Luke is writing his gospel, and the book we call Acts, 20 to 30 years later, maybe between the time of 62 and 70 AD, we don't have an exact date. And so there's a good chance, I'm not saying this is a certain thing, but there's a good chance that this former high priest of Israel, who Josephus mentioned was a wealthy man, has funded Luke's research into the life and story of Jesus so that Theophilus would be able to know, is this the real deal? I want to know more certainly. Is Jesus truly the Messiah, the risen Son of God? So, Acts, part two of a two-volume work on the life of Jesus, written down by Luke, written to Theophilus, so that he would know the certainty of the things he's been taught about Jesus. Now, here is what I've said and what others have said is you know, my attempt to summarize the main theme of the book of Acts. All right. 
a main theme, and this is on your, uh, oh, I call the summary statement. So the summary statement, what is Acts all about? Acts is about the risen, how the risen and ascended Lord Jesus is expanding his reign on earth through the witness of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Say it again. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus is expanding his rule and reign. Another word for that is his kingdom. Through the witness of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. This expansion of Jesus' reign to the ends of the earth is actually Luke's organizing principle for the book of Acts. In fact, Luke's organizing principle for Acts reverses the pattern or the way that the gospel of Luke is organized. Okay, So in Luke's gospel, Jesus moves towards Jerusalem where he dies and rises again. In Acts, Jesus and the church start in Jerusalem but then move outward in ever-widening circles until the kingdom of Jesus is being proclaimed by the apostle Paul at the very end in a Roman prison at the outermost parts of the earth. The key verse for Acts that shows this actually is Acts 1 verse 8. So Gary, can you pull up the slide behind me? Okay, go ahead. See if I did this right. Ah, Acts 1 8. All right. So this is a verse that lays out the program for Acts. Okay? So Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, um, Gary, can you pull up the next slide? All right, and this is also on your handout. Um, that's okay, I don't need it. So, uh, up behind me on the screen is a picture of this Jerusalem-centered movement from Luke's Gospel to Acts. This is a fancy word for what Luke's doing here is called a chiasm. A chiasm was just a really popular way of writing in the ancient world. You would organize things you were saying in a sideways V shape um, with the central activity or your main point of what you're trying to say or the most important stuff often in the middle, okay? And here you see the central section is the E in the picture, E and E won't E prime. Um, what is the most central, most important thing that Luke is structuring everything around? The resurrection and ascension the Lord Jesus. Everything in Luke builds towards it. Everything in Acts flows from it. Okay? So Luke starts off his story with the birth of Jesus in the context of Roman rule under Caesar Augustus. And then moves to Jesus in Galilee and the Gentiles, and then Jesus in Samaria and Judea, and then Jesus in Jerusalem, and then Jesus rising and ascending in Jerusalem, which ends with the ascension of Christ. And then notice how Acts reverses the pattern. Jesus and his church start in Jerusalem. So Acts 1, Gary, you could, um, you could just go to one slide now, and you guys can follow along in your handout if you'd like. So Acts 1, 4-5, Jesus says to the disciples, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. So 
stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So it's chapter 1, verse 12 to 7, verse 60 are all about the church in Jerusalem. And their activity in Jerusalem builds and expands until this summary verse, right before a kind of a transition story where Stephen is stoned and the church scatters to Judea and Samaria. Right before that transition story of um, Stephen stoning, you get a, a verse in Acts 6, verse 7, which is really important. We're going to circle back to it in a little bit. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Remember what I said about Luke's interest in priests. Oh, and by the way, Theophilus, priests are getting saved. Okay, this happens multiple times. So the word of God is increasing and spreading. Another way of saying this, we'll look out later, is being fruitful and multiplying. Same words. As in Jerusalem. And then after the stoning of Stephen, there's a shift in Acts 8, verse 1. He's being stoned. Then, as he's dying, what, does anybody remember what does Stephen see as he's dying? What happened? You can shout it out. You remember? What does he see? He cries it out. I see heaven open and the Son of Man. Right? He says, which we've preached through Daniel in the church. He says, I see Daniel 7, and it's happened. And Jesus is there at the throne of the Ancient of Days. The one who has ascended through the clouds, he's still there at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning even as I am dying for him down on earth. I see Jesus. And he sees the power of the risen Christ even as he's giving his life for him. Now, verse 4 of chapter 8 then says that when this happens, the church is scattered. And there we see the church in Judea and Samaria. That's last from Acts chapter 8 all the way up to the beginning of chapter 13. Now, it's really significant that Stephen sees this Son of Man from Daniel 7, enthroned. Remember what happens in Daniel 7? This one like a son of man in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, ascends through the sky dome into the heavenly throne room of God. And this one like a son of man in Daniel 7 is given authority and glory and sovereign power. And then verse 14. So remember, what Stephen sees is right at the transition point where the word is about to go global. And Stephen sees the son of man on his throne. And Daniel 7, 14, 7 verse 14 says, All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Not just Jerusalem. The Son of Man is worshipped by all nations. So the scene and Daniel, the scene in, in Acts eight sets the stage for what follows. And for from Acts eight to thirteen, the focus is Judea and Samaria surrounding Jerusalem. Then starting at Acts chapter 13, verse 1, all the way up to 20, verse 38. There's another shift, 
marked by another summary statement in Acts 12, verse 24. Just like this, it's the almost the identical wording that we saw summarizing the spread of the word in Jerusalem back in chapter 6, verse 7. Acts 12, 24, the section's drawing to an end, and we see this summary statement. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Literally be fruitful and multiply. And now it's going to flourish first in the Gentile world and then finally in Acts 21 to 28 to the very ends of the earth before the kings and rulers of the Roman Empire as Paul goes on trial and preaches the gospel to Felix and Festus and Agrippa and then Rome. So all nations are going to start worshiping the Daniel 7 son of man. And so the book of Acts, with the Apostle Paul, it ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome proclaiming the kingdom, the rule and the reign of King Jesus to whoever would listen to him in Rome. This is really important, how Acts ends, because it ends very similar to how it begins. The book of Acts starts with Jesus teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God for 40 days. So that's in Acts 1 verse 3. That's where my handout was wrong. I said 1 verse 4. Then in Acts 1 verses 6 and 7, the disciples, they ask the question, Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They're, they're in the presence of the king who's risen from the dead. And they're like, Jesus, Israel's a mess. Like those priests, they killed you. Israel's, Israel's rulers right now tried to murder you, and they're in league with Rome, because they did it with Rome, and Jesus, are you going to fix this? Are you going to restore our broken country? We want the kingdom to come now, and Jesus says, it's not for you to know the details about the timing, but you are going to bring the word about my rule, my kingdom, my reign, the word about the king, you're going to bring it to the ends of the earth. See, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, to Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so then we see the book of Acts ends in Acts 28 with the, the kingdom including far more than just Israel. So the king of Israel, who's the king of Israel? Jesus. He aims to make the whole world his realm. How? Through the preaching of his word and the power of his spirit. And so Acts ends with these words. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in Rome, in his own rented house, and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very important that he chose that word there. Paul about the Lord Jesus and Christ is not just like Jesus' last name. It's a title. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and he's teaching about the Lord Jesus, God's anointed Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. And he's doing it in Rome to anyone who will hear him. So remember the summary statement for the book of Acts. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus is expanding his reign on earth through the witness of the church by the power of the Holy Spirit so that even here at the outermost parts of the earth we are worshiping the risen Lord Jesus the Son of Man in English today.
Now, that's the structure of X. Now, what I want to do now is change the angle of the lens that we're going to look at X through. So we're kind of looking at, at a structural level and then what's the main message. Now I want to just say, and I'm, I'm going to totally throw my cards here. I, I'm using the language of our good friend Brian Brett, who was a pastor here for three years and seminary buddy. I talked to him a couple weeks ago or a week ago. I said, I'm preaching Acts. He goes, oh, this is great. Right? I've been reading Acts in my personal Bible time. You got a minute? I'm like, of course, Brian. So, so Acts is basically Luke's retelling of the story of the Old Testament. But this time, there's a new Adam on the scene. There's a new Adam, a better Adam in command as to Lord Jesus. So Acts is the retelling of the Old Testament story with a new Adam. Have you ever wished that you could rewrite your own story? Go back and edit all the things you shouldn't have done. All the things that went wrong, the mistakes, the failures, the shortcomings, the wrong choices, the shoulda, woulda, couldas. I know that I have felt this way at times. And if you've ever read the story of the Bible and read it carefully, you might end up feeling the same way. Wish we could rewrite the story where Adam didn't do what Adam did. So I'll give you a brief refresher of this story. The Bible's story, the story that Jesus is rewriting, starts off with two humans, Adam and his bride. And the Bible's story on Jesus is continuing with the last Adam and his bride, the church, where it ends in the glorious wedding supper of the Lamb. Starts with marriage, ends with marriage, from beginning to end. But here's the beginning. God creates a world. He creates a human to rule over his world in his way. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and increase in number. Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28. Fill the earth to the end of the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Rule, Genesis 128, over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So two humans, blessed by God, commissioned to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth to the ends of the earth, and rule over creation. And so from the Garden of Eden, the original design was that Adam and Eve were to expand their, the realm and the rule of God increasingly outwards to the ends of the earth. But it's, and fill the earth with images of God. His representatives. And instead, they rebel against their creator. They're exiled, kicked out of the garden. They're cut off from the tree of life so that eventually they physically die. After their exile from the garden, things get so bad on earth that every thought of man was evil continually. That's pretty bad. In Genesis 6-3, God says that his breath, or his, his spirit, his wind, the same breath he breathed into man, will not contend or put up with rebellious humans forever. In 120 years, the flood is going to come. His end, man's end, will be 120 years. And I take that to be the flood starting. And so it happens. 120 years later, God cleanses the earth of sinful flesh by pouring out his blood water judgment on the earth and all flesh that has the breath of life 
literally what it says. Everything with the breath of life. All flesh with the breath of life. The breath is your bond. Except Noah and his family who walked with God just like Abraham was called to. Just like Adam and Eve were supposed to in the garden. The whole theme of walking with God, right? That we preached on, actually. I think we had a whole sermon on that in Ephesians. you got to be careful here. I'm going to squirrel! <laughs> Chase down a rabbit hole. No. Back focus on this story. So, creation reboots, as it were, after the flood, with a new Adam and his family. Noah. Now, the story of Noah, which we preach through as a church, has so many parallels to the Adam and Eve story. It's beyond obvious that what the biblical authors are trying to do is hold up Noah as an Adam duo. Okay? So through the waters of the flood, Noah and his family travel in a little ark filled with animals, and they land on a mountain on dry land prepared for them by the wind of God, just like the, the wind of God uh, hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 and created the dry land for humans to inhabit and their animals. They get off the boat, and God blesses them, just like he blessed Adam and Eve, and he gives them the same command as Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And so what's Noah do? He plants a garden, a vineyard. Ah, the new Adam's in a garden. What does he do in his garden? He sins. With the fruit of the vine, he lays naked in his tent, and something happens to him done by his youngest son, which is Canaan in the narrative, actually, his youngest grandson, the youngest son of Ham. And Noah, can ever wonder why Noah curses Canaan and not Ham in the narrative? It's because Canaan's his youngest son, and the narrative leaves out what he did. But something shameful resulting in curse. Curse comes, just like the Genesis story. Naked and ashamed in a garden. It's a mess. And I'm just, that's just scratching the surface. There's so many hyperlinks between those two stories. The biblical authors want you to connect these things. And things spiral worse and worse after the flood until Genesis 11, where we read the story of the Tower of Babel, or Babylon. Same word. At Babylon... All the people of the earth are together with one language, one lip, literally, which could be worship or language. Same word. And at Babylon, they're assembling under their ruler, Nimrod, who built Babylon from the land of Shinon. Together, they're seeking to make a great name for themselves by building their own mini mountain of God into the heavens. A little tower. Let's build a mountain that connects to heaven and make a great name for ourselves so we can get up there with the spiritual beings and be one of them. And in response, God scrambles the languages, scatters the nations, and then, Genesis 12, he picks a new out. Abram. A Babylonian living in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he tells this Babylonian man, Abram, later called Abraham, that he will make his name great. Just like in Genesis 11, they're trying to, we're going to make our names great. God puts a stop to it and says, Abram, you, I'm going to make your name great in Genesis 12. And he says, 
I'm going to bless you. And through you, more specifically, through your seed, all nations of the earth are going to find God's blessing again. The blessing Adam lost, the blessing Noah lost, is going to come back again to the world through the seed of Abraham. So the attention of the whole story of the Bible turns to Abraham and his kids, the seed, who become the 12 tribes of Israel. But of the 12 tribes, the prophets tell us that there's going to be one tribe, Judah, who's going to produce for us a perfect king, not just the 12, over the 12 tribes, but over the whole world. You see that in Genesis 49, verse 10, Judah's going to be like a lion. 49, 8 to 10. And the scepter, the ruler's staff, is not going to leave Judah until the obedience of the peoples belong to him. And this lion of Judah, he is going to beat death. He will reign forever. How? Because he's going to have an eternal throne. He'll be a descendant of King David. Prophet after prophet in Israel weighs in on this topic. They're obsessed with it. Filling in the picture more and more. I don't know if you ever know, like, there was a lot of writing going on around the time of the prophets. And even in the 400 years between Malachi and, and uh, the New Testament, there's a lot of writing going on. Okay, People are writing things. And they're writing some helpful things. There's a lot of literature. And so, you ever wonder, why is, why is the, that stuff not in our Bible? Why do we have the Bible we have? Because every prophet in the Bible is obsessed with the Messiah in some way. The Bible is a messianic book. It's all about Jesus. And these prophets are all writing about Jesus in some way or another. And this king, this king that they're putting all their hopes in, the seed of Abraham, he's going to come and he's going to restore the people of Israel, according to the prophets. He's going to give his life for their sins, according to Daniel 9 and Isaiah 53. He's going to rise again. The grave is not going to hold him. He'll raise all the dead people from their graves. We could go on and on about this king that the prophets put their hope in. It's Jesus. And so in the book of Acts, the writer Luke is, is writing in light of the fact that this Jesus, this hope for king, has come. He is the son of Abraham. He is the descendant of David in the line of Judah. And so the scene in Acts starts with this risen king, Jesus. He's teaching his disciples about his rule and his reign, his kingdom. And then he ascends through the clouds in the book of Acts, just as Daniel 7 said he would. Just as Psalm 2, just as Psalm 110 predicted. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And He's on the throne, and from the throne, in the beginning of Acts, Jesus sends two angels, Acts 1, verse 11, to tell his disciples, don't just stand there looking into the sky. Now what? Where'd he go? You know where he went. Daniel 7, read your Bible, guys. He's going to return with the cloud, just as you saw him go, just as... Uh, Zechariah prophesies that every eye will see him, right? He will return to earth as king, but in the meantime, he will build his church through the witness of his people and the power of the Spirit. That's what Acts is all about. So, remember, Acts retells the story I just recounted, but with a new and better Adam. 
So as this story continues, Jesus, the last Adam, who has ascended the throne, he's going to send a new flood from heaven. Not a flood of judgment, where the breath or the spirit of God no longer contends with flesh and is removed from flesh. No, this retelling of the Bible story, prophesied by my favorite prophet, the prophet Joel, is a lot better. It's not a baptism of water to judge all flesh, but a baptism of the spirit poured out on all flesh who believe in Jesus. That story is found in Acts 2. And it's what the prophet Joel predicted long ago in Joel 2, chapter 28, verses 28 to 32, where he says, And the last days, at the end of days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The spirit is coming. It's a rival to the flood narrative predicted by Joel, where God is going to send his spirit again. And he's not going to take back the breath because of sin. He's going to give his life-giving spirit. And immediately after the flood story back in Genesis and the, the first edition of it, uh, remember what we saw? We see Babylon, the gathering of people against God under Nimrod. And God scrambles the languages and scatters the people. But following the flood of God's spirit on all flesh in Acts, do you remember what happens? Acts 2, verse 6. God's people speak in tongues and everyone understands each other. The phenomenon of Babel, Babylon, is reversed. A better story is told. The nations are unified under a new king. Through the risen Christ, all the tribes of the earth are unifying under their new, the new Adam who's risen. Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who's defeated death, who's ascended the throne, is now going to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. And he starts in Jerusalem. He starts with the twelve, which is another important thing I want to point out. Immediately after the king takes his throne, his disciples have to decide, with the help of the Lord Jesus, who in Acts 1 verse 24 knows the hearts of men, they got to decide who will replace Judas, Judas who betrayed Jesus, and bring the number of the apostles of the Lamb back up to twelve again. Why twelve? Well, these disciples of Jesus symbolize the beginning of Israel's restoration that they asked Jesus about in chapter 1, verse 8. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You don't know when the full restoration time is coming, guys, but you, you 11, soon to be 12, will preach the gospel of the king to the ends of the nations and bring them into allegiance to Jesus. The, the restoration of God's people will begin to be fulfilled as the disciples preach his word. Through their preaching, God's word will fall to earth like seed through the preaching of the, the disciples. And it will be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole world with disciples of the Lamb. Now, I've already alluded to this a couple times, so this is the last thing we'll look at. This imagery of the word of the disciples their teaching being fruitful and multiplying, as God told Adam and Eve to do in Genesis 1, verse 28, is picked up at these multiple key important places in the book of Acts. For example, Acts 6, verse 7, at the key place, right, where the gospel is just about to explode to Judea and Samaria with the scattering of the church, we read this, Acts 6, verse 7, so the word of God, and I mean, spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, 
and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, the words used here for spread and increase rapidly, it's not a bad translation. And, and this is the trouble, the struggle with some of the translations that we, we use today. It might be a good translation, but sometimes there's specific words that the New Testament authors are using that are what I, I've been helped, help, a helpful illustration I've been uh, given is, is they're like hyperlinks. So when you're reading a Word document, if something's blue, it's a lot of times a hyperlink and it takes you somewhere else to another page. Okay, one of the ways that the biblical authors would hyperlink to other stories, other places to want to give you, pull you in, like, hey, this is connected to that, is through key words and phrases. One word, maybe not a hyperlink. Two words used like this, that's not an accident. And that's what Luke is doing here. Be fruitful and multiply are the words used for increase and spread here. And it's the same exact Greek words that occur in Luke's favorite version of the Bible, the Septuagint. Be fruitful and multiply. So Acts wants you to see, Luke does the same thing in Acts chapter 12, verse 24, he does it again in Acts 19. He, he wants you to know, okay, that as Jesus, the last Adam, is speaking his word, his announcement, I am king, I beat death, forgiveness is for you if you trust me. As he's speaking his gospel, his word is going out through the church, and it's giving birth to new followers of him from every nation, filling the earth, and fruitful, being fruitful and multiplying through the earth with people who worship him from every tribe, nation, language. It's God's kingdom. His rule, his reign is spreading every time someone hears the gospel and bows the knee to Jesus. Now, truly we are scratching the surface of how Jesus, or how Luke is showing us Jesus is rewriting the Adam story. There's much more and I look forward to diving into it in the weeks to come. But I just want to close with this last Jesus rewrote the story of the Bible, right? By becoming a new and better Adam. Jesus, even in the Gospel of Luke, you can already see this in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Jesus is not falling to the temptation of the desert, mentioned of the devil, but standing firm by the word of God. He succeeds where we fail. Jesus, just like he rewrites the Bible story, he can rewrite your story and my story as well. And that's not a cliche thing to say. It's at the heart of the book of Acts' message. Do you want to be a part of this new story that Jesus is writing? He's the king. He's reigning. Do you want to be a part of his rule in his reign? One of the most Precious stories in the book of Acts is the story of somebody who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul. He was a man named Saul. And his story got rewrote big time. Like God just wrecked <laughs> it up, right? He's murdering or helping murder Christians. He's on the way to murder more Christians with letters to help him do it and giving him authority to do it. And the risen Lord Jesus 
stands up from his throne and says, no, right? Changes his life forever. There's only one thing that can explain the 180 that the Apostle Paul made. And that is that he really saw the living Christ. And it changed everything. This Hebrew scholar of scholars who knew the Old Testament as well, if not better than anyone, alive in his day. Zealous for killing these heretics who were following a false Messiah. And he meets them. And he goes, oh, Daniel 7's already happened, and I didn't know. He's on the throne. And he, immediately the snap happens. The lights go on. And Paul's story, his Saul becomes Paul, who lives his life for Jesus, who gave his life for him. And I just want you to know that no matter where you are in your life, no matter where you have been, no matter what has been done to you, the shame, the guilt, the dirtiness that you feel or carry, if you turn to the Lord Jesus, if you bow to his kingship and his rule, his reign, you immediately become part of a new and better story. The story that the last Adam began to write when he walked onto the pages of history and he's continuing to write and he will complete when he returns. You want to be a part of that story. If you've never decided, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you as king, I encourage you, do that today. Take the Lord's Supper that we're going to take in a few minutes. And may that be your first act as a believer of faith in Jesus. I, I trust you. I want to follow you. I believe your sacrifice is for me. I'm going to pray. And uh, and we're going to take communion as we sing a song together. Lord, I thank you for Jesus, the risen King. Lord, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus is the reason we are meeting here today on a Sunday morning. Jesus rose, defeating death on a Sunday. And we praise you for your resurrection and for your life. And I just ask that you would stir all our hearts with love for Christ, with a zeal to follow him to the end of our days. And to be raised to life one day in the life after the life after death, which is new creation forever. May we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.